Attention, you're listening to the Todd Huff Radio Show, America's home for conservative, not bitter talk radio. Be advised that the content of this program has been documented to prevent and even cure liberalism, and listening may cause you to lean to the right. Here's your conservative, but not bitter host, Todd Huff. Well, that is right. You are listening to the home of conservative, not bitter talk. I'm your host, Todd Huff, and you know that a Democrat is back in the White House when we're bombing Syria again. Anyway, email Todd at ToddHuffShow.com, Facebook.com slash Todd Huff Show. Um, you can stream the program there. Or YouTube, I guess, for the time being, until YouTube permanently censors us. By the way, if you watch this program on YouTube, I encourage you to either download the podcast, find us on Facebook, tune in to Freedom95, uh, which you can listen to also on, on the TuneIn app, because it's a matter of time before we get censored there. Welcome, and it is good to be here as as always. So... I want to start this morning by talking about what I consider a victory, a rare victory today for the rule of law, a rare victory for the rule of law. The parliamentarian in the Senate, in the Senate has ruled that the minimum wage, the minimum wage cannot be included in the reconciliation bill. Now, I don't want to get – this is easy to get into the weeds here, but suffice it to say this – and we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But suffice it to say that the parliamentarian in the Senate is uh, – their job is to interpret the rules of the Senate and to apply them regardless of personal preference. You know, you could say like a justice of the Supreme Court is supposed to do it or – a a judge in general. They're not supposed to be concerned about the politics of it. They're not supposed to be concerned about ramifications of their ruling. They're just supposed to say the law or the rules of the Senate in this case say that this is what can be done. So we have this reconciliation bill, right? This reconciliation bill uh, for COVID relief, COVID relief number 405, I think now. So anyway, the parliamentarian's job, okay, half step back. The reason that that the Democrats want to use reconciliation, budget reconciliation, is because they still have the filibuster rule in the Senate. The filibuster rule in the Senate effectively says that if you have, uh, you need 60 senators to vote to end debate on a particular issue. So what does that mean? That means that unless the vast majority, 60%, three-fifths of the Senate, want to vote on a bill, they can use this tool called the filibuster to continue debating it. And what this does is that it keeps it from being voted upon, which technically or practically speaking causes the majority rule of the senate to go out the window 
and to where you have to have a super majority, 60% to get anything effectively done. For those of you that study this closely or for those of you that follow this closely, you'll know that there was a term called the nuclear option that was coined, I think, by McConnell back when he was the minority leader of the Senate when uh, in, in the past um, because Democrats started using what he called the nuclear option on uh, approving judges, uh, federal court judges. And this is what ultimately led to the nuclear option being used and the filibuster being eliminated for um, you know, Supreme Court justices. And this ultimately is what allowed the Supreme Court nominees of Donald J. Trump to be uh, you know, to, to be voted upon in a simple 51 vote majority for those. So the Democrats, some of them are clamoring to get rid of the filibuster because after all, they have the majority. Well, technically, it's split even, split evenly in the Senate. But Kamala Harris turns out, as I've said before, Sarah Palin was right back in 2008 that one of the roles of the vice president of the United States is to be the president of the U.S. Senate and cast the tie-breaking vote in situations where it's a 50-50 split. And so that gives them, Kamala Harris gives the Democrats the majority of the U.S. Senate. So this makes some of the radical left say, look, man, we can't, we can't get anything done without – getting rid of the filibuster. But then some of them say, look, if we just lose a couple of these seats and we lose the presidency in 2024 or even lose a couple seats in the um, in the Senate itself in 2022, we're going to be in trouble because now the Republicans can get rid of the filibuster. We'll, we'll have set that precedent. And so they're hesitant to do this. So what they've tried to do is to use this tool called budget reconciliation, which we've talked about before, which basically says for certain types of bills, bills that address spending, deficits, there's a very clear and technical set of rules that determines what is – I shouldn't say very clear. As clear as can be in this world of politics, I guess, but there's a series of rules that say these are the types of things that must happen for something to qualify for budget reconciliation. And so budget reconciliation only needs 51 votes. It does not need 60 votes. It is, it is one, of the, uh, one of the things that has a kind of a bypass mechanism around the filibuster. And so they thought that they were all set up to cram down, a minim- uh, cram down the throats of the American public, particularly the business community, the minimum wage increase. They thought that they were all set – to have a $15 an hour minimum wage increase, which the federal minimum wage today is, what, seven fifty. So literally doubling this over the next, I think it was phased in over, was it five years? Four or five years. And so they thought that they had they, they could make the case that that was a, something that qualified for budget reconciliation. However, however, as they found out yesterday, actually last night, um, the parliamentarian of the Senate Again, this is the person who is responsible for interpreting and applying the rules appropriately so that they do things according to the law and their own rules, ruled that this is not part of budget reconciliation. I want to read you a bit from the New York Times. Just listen to how, listen to how this is talked about. It is truly remarkable to me how these, these radical leftists – this passes as unbiased news, by the way, as well. 
Headline here, top Senate official disqualifies minimum, minimum wage from stimulus plan. The parliamentarian ruled that the provision, which would gradually increase the wage to $15 an hour, violated the strict budgetary rules that limit what can be included in the package. By the way, exactly right. Look, budget reconciliation was not designed to be something that allowed uh, the Senate to circumvent their own rules to pass things that should be put into legislation. So this is a victory in my estimation for the rule of law. This is written by a journalist named Emily Cochran, New York Times. She writes this, Democrats suffered a major setback on Thursday in their bid to push through a $15 an hour minimum wage as part of President Biden's $1.9 trillion, with a T. I encourage you to write that number out sometime. It's remarkably large. Nonetheless, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package after the Senate's top rule enforcers said that the increase could not be included in the bill. The, de- the decision effectively knocked out a crucial plank of Mr. Biden's ch- uh, plan championed by liberals. Of course it is because it is a, is a liberal plan. It is a pr- plan of the radical left, just as Mr. Biden is a president um, who endorses the ideology by and large, of the left, even the radical left. I can, she continues here. And de- it demonstrated the perils of the Democrat strategy to fast-track package of the sweeping pandemic aid legislation, part of an effort to steer around Republican obstruction. Part of an effort to steer around Republican obstruction. <laughs> you know, I hate to be the bearer of the bad news here to Emily Cocker, but there are different viewpoints in this nation. And some of those viewpoints are held by people who are in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, but we're talking here about the Senate in particular. So if you oppose this, you're an obstructionist? What what is this? This is this passes by the way. Just for those of you taking notes and want to know when people like me would say it's it's fake news or it's it's not a biased news report, here's a perfect example. What is what is objectively obstructionist about that? What is objectively obstructionist about wanting to make sure, first and foremost, first and foremost, that the rules of the Senate are followed? There's a novel concept. I wish that there was a parliamentarian for the Supreme Court. <laughs> maybe maybe these rulings would be different. I don't really because you can't really do that. But the point is, wouldn't that be nice if someone could say, no, that's not – you're not applying the law there. You're, you're engaging in sophistry. You are you know, writing an opinion based upon something that is not rooted in the Constitution, not rooted in the law. But we don't have that there, and you really can't. I'm not suggesting. I'm just saying could you imagine if there was someone who had this sort of – and interpretive authority here uh, over the Supreme Court as we have here over the Senate. So, but it's obstructionist to oppose a, a raising the minimum wage. It's, a, it's a obstructionist to oppose anything that the Democrats want to do. It's a 50-50 split Senate, Ms. Cochran. I know you think that you are doing your part to, well, I think she probably thinks that she's being unbiased, but give me a break. This is not objectively obstructionist. This is objectively just part of politics, part of politics. And I want to talk a little bit more about the minimum wage as well. We talked about this a couple of, I don't know, two, three weeks ago. 
the government interjecting itself here is not a good thing. I'm telling you it is not a good thing. I would like for people to make more money. I think that that is a good thing. I also think that it's a good thing for people to be healthier and to be, I don't know, take your pick, uh, better, uh, more intelligent. Can, can we legislate these things? I think it's a good thing if people, um, if more people have a relation. Well, I think it's a good thing if any, everyone has a relationship with, with God, Jesus. But you don't legislate these things. I mean, the idea here that you can somehow arbitrarily force people to make more money and have no consequence whatsoever is beyond naive to me. Beyond naive to me. But it's a victory in the short term here for this not to be included in budget reconciliation because it at least requires that this go through the normal procedures of the Senate. Now, Bernie Sanders is out there saying he's going to try to do some workaround to where he's going to um, effectively try to get people in the uh, business owners to be punished if they don't pay their. So instead of forcing them to pay people $15 an hour, which they can't get in this bill, Bernie says this, I'm confident that we have a uh, majority in the U.S. Senate, including the vice president, that would vote to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour as part of America's rescue plan. Yet because of the archaic and undemocratic rules of the Senate, I guess he's referring to the filibuster and the normal processes and having a parliamentarian who actually interprets what's supposed to be said and done as it pertains to behavior and the way legislation is passed in the Senate. Um, he continues, we are unable to move forward and end to end starvation wages. There's a new term. I've heard living wages. I don't know that I've heard starvation wages in this country and raise the income of 32 million struggling Americans. He said he would try an alternative approach here, according to the New York Times, proposing an addition to the stimulus measure that would tax, take, uh, take tax deductions away from companies that fail to pay their workers at least $15 an hour. So if you can't get the, force them to by the law, you must pay this amount. Now we're going to punish you if you don't because – some arcane measure, Bernie Sanders says, allows companies to pay their employees starvation wages. I mean, this that even defies common sense. Starvation wages. Again, I'm sure the New York Times think this is this is a very unbiased and objective way in which to present the story. Of course, they can present Bernie Sanders' perspective. But believe me, you, the, the New York Times is completely on board with Bernie Sanders' perspective as it pertains to the minimum wage and, I guess, how those wages are now starvation wages. Anyway, time out is in order. Continue this discussion after the break. You're listening here to the home of conservative, not better talk. I'm your host, Todd Huff, back here in just a minute. Okay, so, 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 I want to talk here more about the minimum wage. And I talked about this before a couple of weeks ago, but I, you know, I know that there is, it sounds good, right? It sounds good to say, oh my goodness, you're not making enough money. You're not making enough money. And it, 
it builds some sort of bond, I guess, with constituents or with people that follow you to say, I'm going to make sure that your company pays you what you're worth. I'm going to make sure that your company at least pays you a living wage. I'm going to make sure, Bernie Sanders says, that I'm going to end starvation wages. Starvation wages for you. I'm going to step in and fix it. I'm going to be your knight in shining armor. I am going to be your hero. Government is going to save you from the perils, the pitfalls, the nastiness of the private sector, of the of the economy. That's what we're here for. We're to protect you from the big, bad, evil guy. And look, I'm not saying that corporations are always right or that they're always, uh, I don't know, just good intentioned or just benevolent or whatever. That's, by the way, with the politically correct culture we live in, they look at these issues and try to find opportunities to make it look like that they are such great things they look actively look for things to to you know to show their you know their customers or their prospects just how much they care and look sometimes it's for it's it is for very good reasons there's a whole mixture we're dealing with people ultimately and so when you deal with people there's a whole host of motivations and so forth but when it comes to the minimum wage i've said this before your value my value as a human being is intrinsic it is we we were born with it because we're created in the image of god right and so bill gates his intrinsic value now hear, hear me out is no higher than anyone else on the face of the planet now bill gates value in certain areas because of what he's done and the the success he's had and the wealth he's built he has created financial gain whatever you think of bill gates maybe that's a bad example many of you probably hate bill gates but just forget about that for a moment take away all the other ancillary stuff and just the the point is is that a person's value as a human being is not tied to his or her earnings right these are different things you don't treat someone better at least you better not because they have more money than someone else. In fact, it's been said, and I agree with this, if you want to know the true character of a person, look at how he or she treats someone who can do nothing for him. Look at how he treats uh, someone on the janitorial staff or a server at a restaurant. You've seen people on business meetings. They're all professional and kind and courteous to the person they're meeting with for the business lunch, and then they treat the, the waiter like absolute garbage, excuse me, the server, the 1980s called and wants their terminology back. The server, as I've been taught to say, you can't treat your server poorly and be a good person basically is the, is the idea here. And it, that's because the way you treat people, the way I treat people is should be one of the top priorities in our minds. But what we, how we treat them and what we pay them don't have, are not the same thing. You don't just simply pay somebody more because you like them. You shouldn't anyway. If you do that as a business owner very long, your business will suffer. You, you might get lawsuits along the way as well. But you can't pay someone more. You shouldn't pay someone more just because you like them. Or you can't treat them. Uh, you know, like if you're if, if you're a Democratic congressman running for office and you have your spouse 
uh, manage your campaign and you pay them exorbitant amount of money from your campaign to run your campaign or in the case of Bernie Sanders' wife to do his media placement, which they get 15% or whatever percentage it is now, off of the placement of those ads. And that's why Bernie's doing quite well, by the way. Bernie, the Democratic Socialist, is doing the better than the rest of us who are out there living on starvation wages, I guess. Anyway, but this idea, it starts here. Your value as a person is not based upon your earnings. Your, your, your value as a person is based upon who you were created in the image of, and that's the image of God. And even if you don't believe that or want to accept it, that's, that's fine. It gets a little trickier, but it's still we still understand the value of, of a life. Right, we still under uh, we still understand and value that individual, just as a potential. Maybe just you're at a place today where you're not earning what you want to earn. That's your earnings are a snapshot in time, anyway. In the United States of America, people move back and forth between income classes, if you will. I don't like thinking about classes, but just for the sake of discussion, people move amongst income classes or groups, sometimes multiple times over the course of their lives. You may be in struggling tremendously now and be incredibly financially blessed in a short matter of time or vice versa. Anyway, so that's the first thing. The second thing is what in the uh, – the value of a job is based upon what the value of the job is, right? In other words, you can't say arbitrarily that every job that every person does is worth $15 an hour, at least. If not, you're paying poverty. Or you're, you're, what was the word he used? Starvation wages. Bernie says you're paying starvation wages, which I find ironic. The only wages Bernie pay, pays are wages that he takes from tax. You know, he takes taxes or donations in the cases of his campaign. Yeah, they didn't produce anything. They did not produce a thing. They either get donations or taxation, and then the money that they get is then provided as, as salary. Bernie's not out there producing a diddly darn thing, yet he's lecturing the people that do produce, those of you listening to my voice, on how to how much you have to pay someone to do any job in your company. So suddenly, every job that every person does is worth at least $15 an hour regardless of where you live. Regardless, I mean, there's dramatic differences between, say, the standard of living in, say, San Francisco versus the standard of living in Omaha, Nebraska, or Little Rock, Arkansas, or Santa Fe, New Mexico. Take your pick of state uh, cities around the country. But Bernie Sanders and the radical left think that they can fix that by just telling businesses, hey, you greedy, no good, blankety blanks. Pay your people more and quit trying to kill them by starving them with the terrible wages you're paying them. I want to say something else, too, <clears throat> and I got to take a time out. Actually, I'm going to have to wait to say this after the break. But there's another thing that I think people need to wrap their heads around when it comes to the way to think about employment. <clears throat> and I, I think that some people have a erroneous claim that it's the job of the business to support their lifestyle. That is not the correct way of looking at it. Anyway, timeout is in order. I'm going to play a soundbite from Lindsey Graham as well. Lindsey Graham thinks $15 is too much, but he still thinks that people should be paid more. Okay, 
So he's going to do something about it with some Waffle House minimum wage plan. So I'll share that after the break as well. Second half of the program, sit tight. You're listening to Conservative Not Better Talk. I am your host, Todd Huff, back here in just a minute. Welcome back. This program brought to you in part by our friends at Avon Insurance Associates, AIA for the number four, lowrates.com, AIA for lowrates.com. If you're in the market for personal or business insurance, consider reaching out to Rick and his team at Avon Insurance Associates in Avon here in central Indiana. Again, AIA for the number four, lowrates.com, AIA for lowrates.com. Dot com. Before I get back to the minimum wage, Oz and I were talking here uh, during the break. Uh, she asked, "What are we bombing Syria for?" And we were talking about that. And I, it just, uh, you know, it's just, it's remarkable to me. And I know we had, we were fighting ISIS with Trump, and we dropped the the mother of all bombs, M O A B Moab. Remember that? I think that was in. We we think that was in Afghanistan. Um. But regardless, remember Trump was supposed to start World War III. Trump was the one that was just this volatile, dangerous person. If Trump had done this, and I'm not even saying it shouldn't have been done. I don't. It's just kind of a breaking, you know, story that that we're you know, we've read about a little bit this morning. But if Trump would have done this, you know how the reporting would be. Oh my goodness, he's starting Armageddon here. President Trump is. President Trump didn't start any wars. I mean, it, it's just a remarkable thing to witness. People don't care, really. I mean, it's just something, oh, we bombed Syria today or, well, yesterday, but that's what we talk about here this morning. But anyway, I want to shift gears back to this minimum wage because I think it's really important because I had a friend, and he told me one time, he's a business owner, he said, you know, you know, Todd, when I you know, bring in some fresh out of college uh, folks who are applying for jobs, we talk, you do, do the interview and that sort of thing. He said, it's, it's a remarkable thing. I, I get to the end and we talk about salary requirements or whatever. And the person will say, yeah, I want say $60,000 a year. And he says, okay, well, why do you think you're worth that much? And he said it was almost stunning to him how much people, how many, how many, how often people would say things like, well, you know, I got these student loans to pay off or, well, you know, I got to save money for this or that, or I, you know, want to go do this or whatever. It doesn't, you know, something that had nothing to do with the, with the job. It's just, this is my life. And the person sitting across the desk from him looked at him as though it was his job just to like, basically by being an employer, you've signed up to provide, um, whatever standard of living the person applying for the job is desired that they're decided that they want in life. That's not, the, that's not how, that's not the right way to look at this. And I'm sure because I know well, the people that listen to this audience, that does not describe 99.9% of you. Some of you, a couple of you may, that may describe a little bit, but it's rare, statistically rare for that to be the case. But out in the rest of the world, this is a common a common thing. The employer owes someone in exchange for the work provided. 
And once those two parties agree on what that is, then they should be able to engage in that. Why do we need why do we need the, the government? Again, we, we talked about this not as it pertains to the minimum wage, but as it pertains to other issues even yesterday. The government's going to swoop in and suddenly make all things right. There's going is there a book somewhere that says that, that this job is worth this much? I mean, of course, they, they're going to say that all jobs are worth the same, but they make it sound like there's some objective standard by which they are the enforcers, enforcers of um, morality. It's immoral, business owner, to pay this person this much for this work. According to what? Your perspective? You're not paying them enough to live. Well, according to what? I mean, this is what the job is worth, right? This is what the job is worth. Look, I love to be able to do things for our team, for our folks, uh, but there are always limitations. No matter who you are, there's a limitation. There's a limitation to what you can do. But it's worth what it is worth. It is it is the equivalent to me at screaming to God every night if you think that you're unattractive and you say, I you know, God, I you know, just I can't believe you you made me this unattractive. Or even worse, going to your parents, your parents and saying, You've made me your your DNA is a part of me, you've made me this unattractive. Okay, let's just say you're hideously ugly. What do you want the, your parents to do about it? That's my point. What in the world do they think can be done about this? Well, arbitrarily making the value of a job worth more. There are going to be consequences for that, my friends. There's no way in this world that there cannot be consequences for that because things work a certain way, and if you... If you change the way that things are done, if you force people to have to then adjust how they operate, there's going to be ramifications. There will be people who lose jobs. The C, uh, what's the, the budget office? I'm drawing a blank. CB, uh, Congressional Budget Office has, has said that there's, there's going to be lots of lost jobs if we raise the minimum wage to this. But there's going to be fewer people living in poverty because – the people who live on seven fifty an hour now are going to live on fifteen or whatever the you know percentages of those people that actually keep their jobs are. Restaurants will close. I mean, th- this is going to be tough for small businesses. And by the way, if you want to make more, the best way to make more money is to take on more responsibility, provide more value to your company, help improve the bottom line. These are the ways to do it. Don't sit back, cross your arms, and say, this is what I do here, and you're going to pay me this because my time is worth this. Well, I'm not paying you for your time. I'm paying you for something to be done. I'm not just paying you to, to, to spend your time here. I'm paying you to accomplish a goal, an objective, to, to play a role and a task in providing a good or service to our, our customers. But people don't understand business. That's another thing. I know when I was I studied political science in in college and I'm telling you I can understand easily how someone can 
graduate with a political science degree and think that business and money is evil. I can absolutely understand that. In fact, my senior year, and I've got to take a break, my senior year, my last one of my last courses was a, a course called is, Com- is Capitalism Really Better? And it compared and contrasted communism and capitalism. Butler University, there were eight students in the class, four, four boys, four girls. And at the end of the class, at the end of the semester, we took a vote. And I'm just here to share the data. You can read into it or just whatever. You cannot read into it. I'm not suggesting anything. Let me be clear on the top, off the, off the top here, that I'm not suggesting anything. But there were eight votes. Four people voted for capitalism. Four people voted for communism. Half the class voted for communism. Seniors, political science majors, Butler University. The year was 2000. Political science majors often go into law school or in other political endeavors. They're working for congressional offices, for all I know. They're starting up think tanks or working at places, managing people, advancing political philosophy and research and that sort of stuff. Do you not think that that has an impact on average Americans to think you know, that, that, that there's this embrace of, of communism, at least half of the people in my class? Anyway, timeout is in order. Mr. Potato Head, if I can still say that. Have you seen this? We'll talk about that after the break. I still want to play this Lindsey Graham soundbite and talk about Mr. Potato Head, too. Sit tight. Be back here in just a minute. Welcome back. I told you I would share this soundbite. Lindsey Graham talking about his plan, the government's plan through the eyes of Lindsey Graham and other Republicans as well to fix the minimum wage problem here in our country. They're not going to be on board with the $15 an hour, but they can do it more responsibly, better than the Democrats. Here's what Lindsey Graham has to say. I know what it's like for businesses to have to absorb increased cost. Mm -hmm. There's only so much you can pass on to the consumer. So this is the really bad idea. I don't mind looking at increasing the minimum wage in a responsible way. I just met with the Waffle House today. If you don't know who the Waffle House is, you're not in touch with America. Mm -hmm. So, So the Waffle House is where the rubber meets the road in terms of affordable good food and people working hard and living off uh, tips. So they've got a plan I'm going to talk to Joe Manchin about, about how to increase the minimum wage index at to inflation that will be easier for business and get us to where we want to go. But what these folks are proposing is doubling it at a time when government at the state and local level is pretty much restricting your ability to earn a living. You want a one-two punch for small business? This is it. There you go. So, I mean... It sounds more responsible than saying we're just going to raise it, businesses suck it up, or deal with you know the consequences. But it's still not like he's talked to Waffle House. Waffle so suddenly, and God bless Waffle House, no problems with Waffle House. Waffle House thinks that this should be done. Okay, so let's apply this to every business in America. What on earth, Senator Graham? Anyway, I just told you I would share that. I don't want to miss this opportunity, though, because I had a, I had a listener said this to me last night. I saw this this morning, too, but um, listener emailed me this headline here, Fox News. 
Hasbro rebranding Mr. Potato Head toy line as gender neutral Potato Head, but not renaming individual toys. Mr. Potato Head, according to this is the article of Fox News, the classic Hasbro toy brand, which includes the mustachioed Mr. Potato Head and the clean-shaven Mrs. Potato Head will soon be rebranded as the gender-neutral Potato Head toy line. So it won't be <laughs> it won't be Mr. and Mrs. anymore. It'll be gender gender-neutral. The new branding will be reflected on packaging scheduled to debut later this year. The Associated Report uh, Press reported on Thursday. Hasbro says it's Mr. Potato uh, Potato Head brand which includes all kinds of toy tubers, is being changed simply to Potato Head in order to better reflect the full line. To better reflect, give me a break. We know why you're doing this. Don't tell us it's to better reflect the the full line. This is California. In the state of California, they are either looking into or maybe they've already passed the legislation. I don't know. But $1,000 fines for businesses, department stores who have a girl's toy section or a girl's section and a boy's section. You're going to get fined for that in the People's Republic of California. By the way, where where Javier Becerra is coming from, um, as far as the state that he is, uh, you know, that he calls home, and he's the HHS pick for Biden, he's facing some nomination problems doesn't care apparently that there were no free and fair elections in Cuba. He didn't call for those in 97, didn't seem to have a problem with the dictatorship. You know, by the way, if the Democrats want to look and find people who are a threat to our democracy, they should look no further than that the folks like Javier Becerra. Quick timeout is in order. You're listening to Conservative Not Bitter Talk. I'm your host, Todd Huff, back here in just a minute. Welcome back. I briefly touched on this. I don't have much time, but Javier Becerra, Biden's HHS pick. He is, um, in 1997, when he was a representative, he really did. He would not say, he would not come out and speak out against the, he went to Cuba. He didn't speak out against the conditions in Cuba. He actually wouldn't even basically say it was wrong for them not to have free and fair elections. Now he wants to be the HHS pick. In fact, he upset even Democrats on the uh, on, on a caucus he was a part of. Um, they, they resigned from the caucus, 1997. Democrats are out there looking to blame MAGA supporters, Trump supporters, say that these folks are a threat to our democracy, as they say. Meanwhile, we got a real threat, someone who doesn't seem to apparently have a problem with Fidel Castro in Cuba. It's going to be the HHS pick. I've got to go. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. SDGC Monday. Take care.